I want everybody in this place to just close your eyes. Would you do that? Just close your eyes. And I want you to imagine this scene. And I want you to put yourself in the scene. And as I read this to you, imagine the scene. And you're in it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths that are right for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now now keep your eyes closed. And see the, the good shepherd. He's coming to you. He's close. In fact, at this moment, he's face to face. He's looking right in your eyes. And he smiles. Now, what does he say to you? Now look up. How often do we take the time to see him face to face and to hear his voice? I want to propose to you this morning that wherever you are this week, is holy ground. That you are in the midst of the holy wild, that place where God in his majesty and his magnificence and his massiveness resides. And at any moment, any moment, he's speaking to you. Jesus would show up in common places. It could be in the early morning hours as he's watching his friends go off in their boats to fish for the day. It could be at the marketplace as they're closing up at night. It could be with the children as they're playing in their, in their homemade playground and he's there laughing with them. 
It could be on, on a rock next to a freshly plowed field. It could be at a very, very fancy dinner. But in all those situations, he would speak this word. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is near. God is here right now. And he's speaking to you. Do you hear him? If we are going to hear God speak, if we are going to recognize that he's doing something around us, which he is, then we must take a bold move. We must ruthlessly, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Hurry is the major culprit responsible for us not hearing God speak to us and not being aware of what God's doing around us. And in the holy wild, in the kingdom of God, in the place that God resides, understand there is no such thing as hurry. It's not there. Jesus had some really good friends, two sisters, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And Jesus was out of town and got word that Lazarus was in a critical illness. He was dying which is a good thing to get a hold of Jesus because first of all, he loves them deeply and secondly, he heals people. But watch what Jesus does. John records it in John 11. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been in the grave four days. You see, we cannot hurry God's schedule. But when we're in a hurry, we will miss his schedule. Jesus always arrives with life at the exact moment that it's needed. And here's what Jesus told his disciples. John records it. He said, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And they go, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You see, we hurry because we think we're going to miss life. Jesus says, slow down, and you will find life. It is going to be a really difficult thing for us to slow down. We live within a culture that prides itself in its ability to get us the information quickly, to get us the package quickly. I just read today that, that, there's, that, that Amazon is working on this ability to read what you think you need, and before you order it, they will send it your way before you order it, because they're sure you're going to order it. And if it, you don't happen to order it, they may give it to you complimentary or to reduce price, because they already know what you want, so you'll get it before you even ask for it. We live in a, in, in a whole society of drive-up, drive-up pharmacies and drive-up restaurants. And, and, and in fact, let me just show you a picture of, of, of this is a drive-up, this is a drive-up trauma unit out of Stanford that during the, the H1N1 virus last year, instead of going in the hospital, you could just drive through and they take care of you. They said it was a good thing too because they kept all those sick people in the cars. 
Not in the hospital, because why would you want sick people in the hospital? And just in case a friend of yours died, you could go to Compton, California, to this funeral home, and you can't very well see the sign, but there's a drive-through window viewing from five to nine. You can drive up, and there's this big plexiglass window, and you can see Uncle Bob and drive on out. Honk if you love Uncle Bob. Beep, beep. <laughs> we are nuts, aren't we? Martin Friedman defines hurry sickness as what we're talking about as above all, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time, frequently in the face of opposition, real or imagined from other persons. Jesus called it being consumed by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life so that God's life cannot take root in our hearts. So about eight weeks ago, I had a visit with my doctor. He said, I need to send you to get an ultrasound. I went to the ultrasound. After the ultrasound, I said, I need to send you to a specialist. I went to the specialist. The specialist looked at everything. He said, okay, you've got a, a small mass starting to grow in your body, and we have got to go in and take that thing out, so you're going to have to have surgery. And then he said these words. He said, but there's less than 1% chance that it's cancer. So last week, a week and a half ago, and you know I wasn't here last Sunday, I had surgery, and they went in, they took it out, and thank God it wasn't cancer. But I was so surprised. I was so surprised at my response because, because I, I, I do a lot of things for God, and I think a lot of things with God. And I was surprised how I responded to this thing because when the doctor said to me, there's less than 1% chance, you know what I heard? There's 1% chance. You see, I could buy lottery tickets from now for the next 100 years and I never win, but I thought, I'll win that. I'll get the 1%. That's me. And it created an incredible anxiety in me. I had to start dealing with that anxiety. And what happened to me all of a sudden was everything else slowed down. You cannot deal with life issues in a hurry. And so what I recognized was that I was dealing with a lot of anxiety, a lot of what-ifs. So I slowed down other parts of my life, and, and I decided that I was, if I wasn't deep enough in the holy wild, that I was going to dive in even further. And so I began to really dig deep in Scripture, and I went to the book of Psalms, and I began to cry out the, the words of the psalmist, and I began to try to discover who God is in a greater dimension in my life. And it took me a long time to get to the spot a long time and in hours to, to come to a, a place where I began to see the magnitude and the massiveness of God. I began to understand this holy wild. And, and I got to the place I was able to pray. And it took me a while to get there. I began to pray, God, look how massive you are. And I began to describe the words of the psalmist. I said, look how massive, look how great, look how you fill the universe. Look, 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 God, this is you. And this marble-sized thing that has invaded my life, look how small that is compared to you. You can deal with this thing. And I spoke to the marvel-sized thing. I said, you don't belong in the temple of the Holy Spirit. You got to go. And I'd put my hand over that spot and I'd say, you don't belong here because look who you're dealing with. 
And you'd think after I've done that one time, I'd think, oh, I'm cool. Oh, no, the next day I had to go through the whole thing again because that anxiety would just start to come. And everything slowed down. I slowed down, especially right after the surgery. I didn't know what they did to me on that table, but I'm sure they put me in a medieval rack and just stretched me out and then beat me with a bat because when I woke up, I could hardly move. So I moved slow. I slept a lot. And the, perhaps the worst thing of all of this was they told me I couldn't drive for a week and that my wife would have to drive me. <laughs> now, what I'm about to say is not a critique of Pam and her driving. It is because it's not wrong. It's just not right for me. <laughs> so she was so gracious. And I tell you, as I'm dealing with his anxiety, she was, she was so calm and, and, and I just, I had my game face on and I was, I was going to beat this thing and, but she was, and she was so sweet to me. And so we'd get in the car and, and when I get in the car, I open the back door, I throw my stuff in, I get in the car, I got the engine going and I'm out in no time. Pam would get in the car and she would take her stuff and she would find the very perfect place for that. She would sit down in the driver's seat and adjust it, even though she had driven it last. <laughs> she would find places for stuff, and, and she'd find, okay, now where should my purse go today? And so she would, she would find that spot, and then I'd think, okay, we're ready to go. And she'd reach up and pull the visor down and flip open the mirror and take out the liner and go, and I'm thinking, you couldn't? We got mirrors in the house, honest. And then with the lipstick thing, and then she'd pull the purse back out and put the stuff in the purse. And I'm thinking, I could have walked by now. <laughs> and I think we're ready to go. And instead of pushing the button to start the car, now she reaches up and adjusts the mirror. And I'm thinking, you're the last person to drive this. You think you grew three inches last night? It's the same location. So let me back out and it's just, it's just, and I want to go so fast and I'm just so much in a hurry. And so I want her to take the right routes. I want her to take, why are you going this way? And she looks at me like, and I look at her when she tells me what to do. And, and, and she's, and it's a horrible feeling when you know you're just like her. It's just horrible. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why are you going this way? And she said, I'm driving. I said, I know. And. And so, so here's, here's, the, here's the kicker on the whole thing. I finally said to her, why aren't you going up Peach Street? Why are you taking the back way to the church? Because we're coming out from the mall. I said, go, go the, why are you going Peach? And she said, number, let me give two reasons. Number one is this. I haven't been the back way for a while, and it's just fun to go that way. <laughs> fun. <laughs> and then she said this. And secondly, the back way gives you less people to yell at. I'm still in surgery. It is so easy to get caught up with the hype and the crowds and the hectic pace. And we think that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work 70 hours a week because that's what really hard workers do. We're supposed to fill our schedules because we'll miss something if we don't fill our schedules. 
And so we get hyped and we're going to be a success. And, and then once we reach a success, we got to do more to keep that success or go beyond that success. And we think that's life. And Jesus says, no, in fact, Jesus says, I do the opposite. A leper came to Jesus and said, can you heal me? And Jesus said, sure, I can heal you. And he healed him. And, and here's what happened. Luke records it. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him. You hear that? The crowd showed up to be healed of their sicknesses. That's a great thing. But listen to the next verse. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. We think that crowds and success are life goals. Jesus thinks they're life distractions. So to fight that, Jesus practiced disciplines so that he could keep himself himself. Jesus did not allow the culture to shape him, but Jesus shaped the culture because he spent time letting God shape him. If our prayer is going to be the prayer that we said we're going to pray for the next couple of weeks, and we started two weeks ago, if Soren Kierkegaard's prayer is ours also, and the prayer is this, and now, Lord, with your help, I will become myself, then we've got to do this. We must carve space for solitude. I mean, watch Jesus into the wilderness. He goes alone to spend 40 days, him and God, so that he can seal his destiny. I think you're turning the page. I can hear this. <laughs> alone, Jesus went to process the death of his friend, John the Baptist. Alone, Jesus and God spent together so that Jesus could finalize the listing of who would be his disciples. After the miraculous campaigns of healing and deliverance, Jesus would go out and be alone in a lonely place. Alone in the garden, though the disciples were close, they were sleeping alone in the garden, he finalized yielding his will to God's. And when the disciples came back from their own campaign of casting out demons and healing people, Jesus had this statement, now come away with me to a deserted place. Why? Because solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. Without solitude, the very things in culture that we detest will be the things that shape us. One researcher found that it took quite a bit, a high dose of amphetamines to kill a mouse living in solitude. But if he put that mouse with a group of hyped-up mice, it took 20 times less the amount for that mouse to die because of the hype around him. In fact, they could take a mouse not drugged with anything and put him with hyped-up mice, and that other mouse that was clear of drugs would die within 10 minutes. So the question is, what are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing? We live off of Red Bull. Gotta keep going. We don't go to bed till late at night, or if we go to bed, we can't go to sleep because our mind is racing with all the things we gotta do. We increase our calendar. We, we give no space. We just keep piling it full, and we've gotta do all these things. We just gotta keep doing those, and we're killing ourselves. So please understand that there's always enough time in a day to do God's will. 
So if we are crowded out, there's some things in there that are not his will. And I tell you, we won't discover what those are until we carve out solitude so God can say, I don't need you to do that. What are we doing to our kids? They come home and say, I've got to join this club and I've got to go on this traveling squad and I've got to be in this recital and I've got to do this, 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 this. Or if you are really, really thinking your kid's the most wonderful person in the world and they've got to be in these camps and they've got to do these things because it's the best thing in the world and if we don't get him in all those things, they're going to miss everything in life and it's going to be so bad. So let me ask you a question. In your solitude, what did God tell you that your child is to be so that you could direct that child that way? God never meant for this to be hit and miss. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try this. He said, I'll show you. Let me ask you this. When does your child ever get the space to see God face to face and hear his voice? When's the last time you said to your child, okay, we're going to carve out this space of time, and in this time, you're going to read these scriptures, and I want you to talk to God and come back and tell me what you think he told you, and then walk them through that. When's the last time you did that? It concerns me that we get so, so wrapped up in our schedules and so exhausted that by the time we hit the weekend, we got to do all our errands on Saturday and Sunday morning hits and we go, oh, I'm so tired. We just can't take the kids. We, we just got to sleep in this morning. And the very place where we could teach them to see God and hear his voice, they don't get to. Without solitude, we're killing ourselves. God is heard in the open spaces, not in the crowd and stand in line and take a number spaces. You don't hear God when you're hurried. So what is solitude? Solitude is nothing. It's no conversation. It's no people. It's no barrage of stimulation. It's, it's just, it's, it's tearing down what Henry Nouwen would call the scaffolding. The stuff we plant in our lives and surround ourselves with to hold us up so that we think we have identity and value. Because if I do this thing, if I get these things done, then I am someone. I have value. I have, I, I belong to somebody. I'm doing something. It's those things. Solitude is what Jesus said to the rich young politician. And he said, you are so rich. Get rid of that stuff. Get rid of everything, all your ties, and just come with me and be with me, and then you will enjoy eternal life. Just do that. And he couldn't do that because he couldn't tear down the scaffolding because he believed the culture. He didn't believe Jesus. It is responding to the call that Billy Graham had at every crusade, and they would sing it and say, just as I am. It's getting to the place that we are like, Adam and Eve, we are naked before God and we've got nothing. And so we stand before God and say, what do you think? And God says, I love you. We cover our lives because we are obsessed with how others see us. And we're afraid of the God who does see us. The first time I went away purposefully to do solitude for three days, it scared me. It meant no TV, no phone, no computer, no communication, just me and God. And that freaked me out. 
because I'm not sure I wanted to hear what God would think about me. Because you see, if I make enough noise and do enough things, I'll never hear him and have to deal with those things. By about the second day, when I finally pressed in and said, I got to do this, and I was into it, and what I heard was this. Do you know how much I love you? Do you really know? Yeah, and I know how messed up your life is, but I chose you that way so that together, just us being together, it will be corrected. So I just want us to be together. And I'll take care of that stuff. I remember the first time that I went to the top of a mountain to spend a day in solitude, and I was really pushing into God, and I said, God, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, I want to be with you. And finally, when I shut up, I heard God say, I've always been with you. If you'd stop running around, you'd see me. A lot of you spent time fasting this week, and you understand that, that fasting is, is, is a way to slow us down. And so it was in a fast, a very lengthy fast, several years ago, that I was about two-thirds away through this lengthy fast, and, and suddenly I, I sensed God's voice, because when you fast, you begin to be able to pick up what he says a whole lot clearer, and, and I heard him say to me, when will you fast just to be with me and not to get something? It broke my heart. And that's the great thing about solitude. Solitude is not to get anything. It's just to be with him. Solitude is listening. Solitude is, is sitting in God's presence and, and listening to his voice speak to you through the scriptures and then stopping and just talking to him about that and, and stopping and just listening to what he may be saying to you. It's praying and then stopping and listening to his response. It's worshiping and, and praising him and singing to him and stopping and listening to the response without any schedule, without any hurry, just wanting to hear from him. You say, but isn't that a waste of time? No, it's a redemption of the time because solitude brings perspective. It's where we unpack. It's where we begin to see him and we see his, his eternalness. We, we see that, that with him, there's so much I don't need. I see what lasts, so I really know what my children need. I really know what I need to be for my friends. I really know how to better love my wife. But to do that, we have got to ruthlessly carve out space for solitude because it does not come easy in this culture. I have a friend in Africa who says, in Africa, time is our friend. With you people in America, time is your enemy. We're going to have to change. We just got to change but it won't happen on its own. You see, you want to get closer to God? In this whole process of getting closer to God, we must practice secrecy. And that's not the same thing as secretiveness. Secretiveness is hiding what should be revealed. Secrecy is a holy habit. It's hiding something out of humility. Jesus said this, Matthew recorded it, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, this is the matter of the heart. It's a matter of pride. Because honestly, I want to hide the ugly stuff about me that God wants me to confess so that you don't know it. 
And then I want to parade before you the good things about me that God says I should hide so that you will know it. And Jesus says, which is more important, the reward of man or the reward of God? You choose. So I have to fight the temptation to tell you how long I fasted, what I gave up. I have to fight the temptation to tell you that I get up at zero dark 30 to study the scriptures. I have to fight the temptation to tell you how much I gave to Kenya kids. I've got to fight that. And then on the opposite side of that, I don't want you to know that sometimes I watch too much TV. That I watch too many ball games. That I yell at people on Peach Street. I don't want to tell you that I have weaknesses and I get tired and I'm not infallible and that at times I'm broken down. I just, I just don't want you to know that. Years ago when we lived in Oregon, and I was just running too much of a hurried schedule and I was in my office and I, I was doing something and I just, I just fell asleep. It was like three in the afternoon, I just fell asleep. And suddenly my secretary came in and it startled me and, and I, I, I jolted up and she said, have you been asleep? I said, no. I'm a liar, no. <laughs> Didn't want her to know. And then she kind of smiled funny at me and walked out. I thought, what's she smiling at? Then I realized I had drool all the way down my tie. <laughs> I want to tell you that life gets less crowded when we, when we resign from impression management. We start, stop having to impress each other, and we do that so often. You know, most of our activities are to impress other people, to make sure that, that we've got the value and we're doing the right thing. In fact, so much of what we say is to leave an impression, to make sure that my identity in your eyes is what it should be. And I think to get closer to God, we have to resign from that. We must create room for silence. There is this saying that it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Our world is so full of chatter, blah, 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 blah. And I go into a locker room and I just hear the guys talking and, and, and it's just, it's just, it's stuff and opinions. And I'm thinking, why would you even have an opinion on that thing? You don't even know anything about what you're talking about. And so the, so they go online, people go on, on media says, hey, hey, so Governor Christie, was he responsible for the slow up on the bridge? What do you think? Why would you know? Are you his friend? Are you in the New Jersey legislature? How do you know that? I'm sure, you, how do you know? We're, we're a, a culture of everybody's got to have an opinion. No, you don't. I have a word from God. Shut up. Okay, maybe he didn't say that, but I, just, I think maybe he would. Let's listen to what James says, the brother of Jesus. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we'd be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. See, the holy habit of silence is the room we create for the searching of God, where we hear his voice and follow. It means that I don't have to have an opinion for everything. Feel free when someone says, what do you think? Oh, I don't have an opinion. 
when there's this debate, you don't have to jump in because we just want to hear our own voice because if we say the right thing, people go, Reisner, he's so smart. One time I got invited because of, of a position I held in one location. They said, okay, that automatically puts you on a university board, Northwest College. You are, you are on that university board there. And so I thought, I don't know what to do. I, I don't have anything past a bachelor's at this point. What am I going to do? So I show up and I'm sitting on this board and they say, you're on the curriculum committee. I didn't even like to open a book. And so I'm sitting on this curriculum committee with a guy who's leading it that has more degrees than a thermometer. I'm telling you. <laughs> and he speaks Latin. And so he goes to this curriculum thing and he says to me, Jack, what do you think? <laughs> so I said something so incredibly intelligent. I think we should have curriculum. <laughs> That's it. I had, I had no sense of what to say. There were moments that God says, I just want you to be quiet because in that quietness, we're not having an opinion. You might begin to hear my opinion. I want you to hear me and maybe someone else speaking will speak on my behalf and it'll affect your life. If you listen more, I can talk to you more. So we have a friend, Pam and I do have a, a, a couple that, that struggled in their marriage and and they separated. And so the girl was getting opinions from a lot of people, friends and family. Here's what you should do because he's being a nasty man and just going through the whole thing. And, and so she got smart. What she said was, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm going to go into solitude and just be with God until he tells me what to do. So she took off and went for a week someplace away from everybody. And somewhere in the week, the most incredible thing happened. Because before she left, she wanted to know what she should do about the way her husband treats her. But halfway through that week, or sometime after halfway, she heard God speak and God said, yeah, there's issues and we got to take care of things. And first of all, I want you to know how much I love you. And, and it just broke her heart. And then he said, and also, I want you to know how much I love your husband the same amount. And then I'll deal with him, but here are the issues in your treating of him. Here are the things in your life that you need to change if it's going to reflect my love. And it just broke her apart. And so she went back home and she called him and she said, I want to ask your forgiveness because I've not treated you right in these areas. And it so broke his heart. He came back. And now, now the, through the years, they have worked really hard to make that marriage healthy. And, and it scares me to think what would have happened to them if she had not had the courage to go face God alone or carved out the time for solitude because she would have never heard. She had to be ruthless. So my question to you is, are you ready? Are you ready to be ruthless to carve out your time of solitude? So let's live it out. On, on your notes, there's this thing called live it out. And I want to remind you that we said in these disciplines, here's what we want to do. In these disciplines, we want to make sure that you're here every Sunday because we want you to hear all these disciplines. And then when we're finished with this series in a couple of weeks, for you to look at one, just one and say, I want to put this in my life and do that between now and Easter. And in addition to that, as we're following Jesus in this process, whenever you follow Jesus, Jesus always ends up with people that don't know him. And so we've said to you, invite your friends to journey with you. See the empty spots in this place? They should be filled with the people you invited because who else is going to invite them? 
So please do that. And then thirdly, as you're deciding what your discipline is going to be, you need to do this together in community. So you need to get a coach. You need to find someone who will coach you and say, okay, I need to do solitude, so keep me accountable. Make sure I I put in the time. I put it on my calendar, and I follow through. Make sure I do that. Cheer me on. And also, we have have on Facebook a thing called Live It Out, and, and we want you to go on there and tell us what you're doing and tell us what resources you found so we can be community in this process. So on your notes today, on on living it out, it says this, following our exercises and experiencing holy habits. Experience each one along with the others offered in the series, and at the end of the series, choose one holy habit you'll practice between now and Easter. So number one, creating room for silence. You ready for this? Create a vow of silence for the one day, speaking only when absolutely necessary. Like if you're at work, you probably should say something. Monitor the conversations around you and take note of how many of them are life-giving or just chatter and pray that everything you speak reflects the presence of God. I dare you. Secondly, practicing secrecy. Do something good this week and in the weeks to come and try to make sure no one finds out about it. You don't have to impress somebody. Just do it. Thirdly, carving space for solitude. Schedule a half day or a full day of solitude. Find a place where you can be uninterrupted and alone, such as a park or a retreat center or Hawaii. That'd be good. (laughs) Spend a brief time the night before asking God to bless the day you're devoting just to him. Arrange the day around listening to God. The following format is adapted from Glendalian's Carney's book, The Spiritual Formation Toolkit, and it's there for you to look at. To do this, you're going to have to get ruthless. Do you want to keep the same schedule? Do you, do you want to miss God or do you want to carve out that space? Do that. Carve it out. Otherwise, we're going to keep living in the insanity we live in, which is simply this, doing the same things over and over again, thinking we're going to get a different result. It's not going to happen. That's why we have disciplines, to get us to the place we can hear God. All right, now put your notes down and close your eyes. Go back to that place we started. Besides still waters, green pastures, restoring your soul. The shepherd's still there and he's looking at you. You're eyeball to eyeball. And he's smiling at you. Now here's what I want you to say to him. I want you to make this prayer to him. And I want you to say it to him just there in your mind. Say this, and now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. Now, what are you going to do? God's blessing be on you. And have a restful week. Have a great day.